And what I didn't realize is that this is the most pernicious form of distraction because it tricks you into prioritizing the easy and the urgent at the expense of the hard and important work you have to do to move your life and career forward. So just because it's a work-related task doesn't mean it's not a distraction. That's the most terrible kind of distraction because you don't even realize you went off track. Welcome back. I'm Kathy Onetto, and this is the Sustainable Ambition Podcast, the podcast that explores becoming consciously ambitious to thrive in both work and life from decade to decade without sacrificing yourself or your life. If you are someone who struggles to stay focused to get your work done, then this episode is for you. And I would probably think that's almost all of us. I know I struggle with staying focused most days. This topic relates to sustainable ambition and the right effort pillar. A part of right effort is about how we use our energy best so that we can go after our ambitions sustainably. And to make it more sustainable, there is benefit in learning how to work smarter, not harder. That's where today's conversation comes in. I was excited to speak with Nir Eyal to learn more about his book, Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. Nir writes, consults, and teaches about the intersection of psychology, technology, and business. He is the author of two best-selling books, the one I just mentioned, and Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. Nir founded and sold two tech companies since 2003 and has taught at the Stanford Graduate School of Business and the Hasso Plattner Institute of Design at Stanford. In addition to blogging at nearandfar.com, Nier's writing frequently appears in the Harvard Business Review, the New York Times, Time Magazine, and Psychology Today, amongst other publications. In addition to this topic relating to dialing in our right effort, I think it's important to explore because so many of us are plagued by being too busy. It's hard to find time to do all we want or need to do. And yet, I wonder if part of our busyness problem is actually a distraction problem. We aren't able to be efficient with our time because we constantly get distracted. So getting everything done takes longer, keeps us overly stretched and busy. Using Nier's term, which you'll hear more about, we can't get traction on the work that matters. Doubly bad. Distraction can often mean we can't be present in moments that matter, so we don't fully benefit from downtimes or when we are connecting with people who matter to us. This gets in the way of us being able to build our resilience through such activities. So distraction comes with a lot of downsides. I've been starting to talk about the concept of being consciously ambitious. In this book, Nir writes about something tied to this. The idea of, quote, people making time for what they want by making a conscious effort to control their time and attention. In this conversation, you'll hear him talk about the importance of intention and share that 90% of distraction is controlled by us, not the external environment. I did a double take on that one. Wait, what? 90%? It's hard to believe based on what we read and what we're told. I really love how Nir tells it to us straight in this episode, and I appreciate how he's calling us forward to take control. 
Let's hear what Nir Ayal can teach us about becoming indistractable. Nir, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great to be here. Well, I'd love to start with this sense of you are an expert in two areas that people might find contradictory, creating habit-forming products that can distract us and how to be indistractable. And I realize you might not see these in the, on that spectrum or being contradictory, but I was curious, how do you hold the polarity between these topics and how do they relate to you? You know, I, th I think, uh, I can't remember who said it, but there's that definition of wisdom is holding two contradictory beliefs at the same time. And so, you know, life is nuanced. Life is not black and white. I think the media wants you to think that everything is about good guys and bad guys, but that's not the real world, right? When you dive below the surface, you see that sometimes the bad guys are good guys and sometimes the good guys are bad guys. <laughs> We're all on this spectrum trying to figure out life and, and uh, the ethics thereof. And so with Hooked, Hooked is about how we can use the psychology of habit-forming technology to help people live better lives. So I didn't write Hooked for the social media companies, right? The book was published in 2014. Facebook and uh, uh, Google and Amazon, all these companies were founded way before, the video game companies way before. What I was doing was stealing their secrets, not for their benefit, right? They already know these techniques. I was stealing their secrets and publishing them in the book so that the rest of us could use them. So the case studies in the books are uh, in, in Hooked are apps like Fitbod that gets people hooked to exercise. Uh, it's it's app like apps like Duolingo that help people learn a new language, make a habit, get them hooked to learning a new language. The Bible, <laughs> there's a case study in my book, Hooked, about how the Bible app is one of the most popular apps in the world because it uses the hook model to get people hooked on verse. So it's really about how we use these techniques. Uh, it's, it's about how they are applied and applying them in a way that helps people get habituated to healthy habits. And I think that's really the promise and the power of these technologies. Now, the flip side is that some of these same techniques can be used in ways that distract us. But this is, of course, nothing new, right? Plato, 2,500 years ago, talked about akrasia, the tendency to do things against our better interests. Now, if the Greek philosophers were struggling with distraction, that means it can't be something that has been caused by our technology. This is part of the human condition. So with every successful technological innovation, people go through a moral panic that it's melting our brains and that it's high, you know, it's, it's stealing our focus. And it's, uh, you know, at, literally every technology has done this from the written word to the, uh, the novel, to the television set, to the radio. We always have these moral panics. And of course, the, the right thing to do is to not lose our cool, is to not say, let's stop using these technologies. That's not very helpful. But rather, the right thing to do is to learn how we can adapt our behaviors so that we can get the best out of these technologies without letting them get the best of us. And so that's what Indistractable is about. Indistractable is about different tools, right? Hooked is about how can we get hooked to learning a new language or uh, exercising in the gym or being more connected to our loved ones. But those are different apps than the ones that uh, seemingly distract us, right? So it's it's. I really think we can have our cake and eat it too. We can learn how to use more of the technology that helps us and use less of the technology that might distract us. And so Indistractable really takes a look at the deeper psychology of distraction. I, I thought at first that distraction was all about you know the the phone in your hand or the 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 website on your on your screen. Not at all. That actually that's just the proximal cause, the root cause of why we get distracted is much more interesting 
and much more empowering, I think, than what you hear today in the news media, uh, that there's actually a lot we can do to make sure that these technologies are something that really does serve us. Well, thanks for clearing that up and kind of connecting the dots to both see them. I know you started by saying like, we like to think of these things as like good and evil or good and bad, but really you're kind of saying it's good and good in this regard, just to put those labels to it. I think these are really, these concepts are really important from Indistractable as foundational to the conversation, which is to explain why time management is pain management and also how you think about traction versus distraction. Sure, sure. So let's start with the term, right? So I'm a, I'm a big word nerd. Uh, I like to start with, okay, the foundational, uh, the, the foundation of what are we talking about here? What does this word really mean? So when it comes to the term distraction, the best way to know if you really understand what is distraction is to know if you, to ask yourself if you understand what is the antonym of distraction? What's the opposite of distraction? Most people will tell you the opposite of distraction is focus, but that's not exactly right. The opposite of distraction is not focus. If you look at the origin of the word, the opposite of distraction is traction. That both words come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull, and they both end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. Reminding us that distraction is not something that happens to us, but rather it is an action that we ourselves take. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you towards what you said you were going to do, things that you do with intent, things that move you closer to your values and help you become the kind of person you want to become. Those are acts of traction. The opposite of traction, distraction, is any action that pulls you away from what you plan to do, further away from your goals, further away from your values, further away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. So this isn't just semantics. This is incredibly important because I would argue that any action becomes traction or distraction based on one word, and that one word is intent. That is, Dorothy Parker said, the time you plan to waste is not wasted time. So we need to stop moralizing and medicalizing these behaviors and acknowledge that if you want to check email or scroll Facebook or watch something on Netflix or play a video game, go for it. We should need to stop telling people that these technologies are bad for them. That's ridiculous. It's like saying, you know, we used to do this with food. Oh. Fat is bad for you. No, sugar is bad for you. No, carbohydrates, this, that, the other has to be organic. No, it's just food, right? And the same goes with our media, social media, the traditional media, uh, news media, like they're, they're all just forms of media. And it needs to be part of our media diet, just like our nutritional diet. But it's about how we consume. Do we consume mindlessly or do we consume mindfully? And so when it comes to traction, any action that you say in advance, you want to do is fine. Somebody tell me why scrolling social media is somehow morally reprehensible, but watching a football game, staring at the boob tube mindlessly, that's somehow okay. There's no difference. It's just because it's one's new. And so we're scared of new technologies. That's it. Now, if you plan that time, if you say to in your schedule, this is when I want to connect with my friends on social media. This is when I want to watch something on Netflix. This is when I want to play video games. Great, do it, enjoy without guilt but do it according to your schedule, not someone else's. You're, then you're turning distraction into traction. Now, let me tell you the real problem, right? The real problem is that we don't even realize when we're distracted. So people think about these usual suspects of distraction, social media, the television and video games, et cetera. But it turns out that when you look at time studies, that's just a fraction of the time that people waste getting distracted. The overwhelming causes of, or, or uh, times that we get distracted 
It's not those usual suspects. It's when we don't even realize we're distracted. Let me give you a perfect example. So for years, I would get into work. I would sit down at my desk and I'd say, okay, I've got that big project I need to work on. I, I, it's at the top of my to-do list. By the way, later we can talk about why to-do lists are so terrible for your productivity. We can get back to that later. But I would say to myself, okay, I've got this big project I need to work on. Nothing's gonna get in my way. I'm gonna get started right now. Here I go. But first, let me check some email, right? Let me just scroll that Slack channel just to you know catch up on what's going on at the office. Uh, let me just do a couple of things on my to-do list that are kind of easy and quick to do just to get some momentum, right? These are all work-related tasks. I got to check email at some point, don't I? And what I didn't realize is that this is the most pernicious form of distraction because it tricks you into prioritizing the easy and the urgent at the expense of the hard and important work you have to do to move your life and career forward. So just because it's a work-related task doesn't mean it's not a distraction. That's the most terrible kind of distraction because you don't even realize you went off track. So we've got traction, we've got distraction. Now what prompts us to traction and distraction are what we call triggers. We have two kinds of triggers. We have what we call external triggers. These are the usual suspects, right? The pings, the dings, the rings, anything in your outside environment that can take you off track. That's what people tend to think of when they think of distracting devices. And a lot of stupid books out there tell you, turn off your notification settings and stop using your phones and get off social media. Great. Well, turns out that's only 10% of the problem. 10% of the problem is our phones, people. 10%. This is, and this is not me saying it's, it's time studies of, of why people go off track show it's only 10% of the time is it because of an external trigger. Well, what's the other 90%? The other 90% of the time that we go off track, it's not because of what's happening in our outside environment, but rather we find that 90% of our distractions begin from within. These are caused by what's called an internal trigger. An internal trigger is an uncomfortable emotional state that we seek to escape. Boredom, loneliness, fatigue, uncertainty, stress, anxiety. These are these uncomfortable sensations that lead to the overwhelming majority of distraction because distraction is nothing more than a desire to escape an uncomfortable feeling. That's the root cause of distraction. So when Plato was talking about distraction 2,500 years ago, I guarantee you it wasn't because of his phone, it was because of his feelings. And this is what we have discovered now that all human behavior, all human behavior is about a desire to escape discomfort. We used to think it's about carrots and sticks, right? We all learned that the basis of motivation is carrots and sticks, plain pleasure. Turns out that's not true on a neurological basis. The way the brain gets you to do anything and everything is by spurring this bit of discomfort that we seek to escape. Even, even get this, pleasurable sensations, right? Don't we wanna feel good? Well, yes, you do. But the way the brain gets you to go pursue that pleasure is by making you feel desire lusting, craving, wanting, all of these things, these emotions are psychologically destabilizing. So what that means, therefore, is if all human behavior is spurred by a desire to escape discomfort, what that therefore means is that time management is pain management. I would go further and say weight management is pain management. Money management is pain management. Everything is pain management, all human behavior. And once you realize that fact, you have to understand that it doesn't matter what the distraction is, right? Whether it's too much news, too much booze, too much football, too much Facebook, you are always going to find a source of distraction unless you understand what that underlying discomfort is that you are trying to escape. 
So the first step to becoming indistractable is to master the internal triggers. If you don't master the internal triggers, they will become your master. So that's step number one, master the internal triggers. Step number two, make time for traction. We talked about traction earlier. This is all about planning out when you're going to do the things that are important to you, living your values. So when you, if you, if you want to live out your values, you have to turn your values into time. And we can get into exactly how to do that. The third step is to hack back the external triggers. Even though they're only about 10% of the cause of distraction, few very, very simple things you can do to make sure that you can hack back distraction from your technologies. But that's, you know, that takes up a, a grand total of one page in my book. But there's all these other external triggers, right? About What about all the stupid meetings we have to attend that are nothing but distractions? What about, uh, uh, you know, people in the office? What about our kids, right? All these things, we love our kids, but of course they can be a distraction as well if we're working from home. So I show you systematically how to go through all these external triggers to make sure that you can hack back those external triggers so that they serve you as opposed to you serving all these external pings, dings, and rings. And then finally, the fourth step to becoming indistractable is to prevent distraction with pacts. And this is where we, we make what's called a pre-commitment to keep ourselves into the task at hand. And it's through using these four steps in concert, right? If you can do one small thing from each of these four steps, this is how you uh, begin walking this path to becoming indistractable. What I'm taking away from what Nir is saying here is that to get control of distraction, we have more responsibility than we might realize. 90% of our distractions are internal triggers. And what we need to learn is how to get comfortable with dealing with discomfort. We humans don't like discomfort, but if we wanna get traction, we have to learn to deal with discomfort. Let's get back to the conversation where Nir gives me some coaching that I think can be useful for all of us. I want to go back to just for a moment, tell me where I'm getting this wrong, because what's interesting to me is like you go to your example of sitting down at work and having this intention, right? You said it's about intent. So your intent is I'm going to sit down, I'm going to start on this big project, but you immediately get distracted, if you will, by these other activities. And if I was thinking about it, and this is where I might be getting something wrong, I'm. it's almost like I'm starting to sit down for traction but I immediately feel uncomfortable. And so it's almost right. like, why do we land in discomfort when we are actually supposedly starting to do something that we want? Why do those, why do those discomforts show up? <laughs> yeah, it sounds like this is landing close to home, which is great. Can, can you give me an example in your own life, perhaps? Like what's something you said you wanted to do, you sit down to do it, and then somehow you don't? Yes. So this happens to me in a couple of different ways. And I was going to ask you about this. One is because I might time box, right, for a certain activity. Mm -hmm. And yet I might sit down and I will say, I know I plan to do this activity at this time, but I really don't have the energy for this right now. So what I do mm. have the energy for is this other activity. And I'm going to go ahead and do that. And once I have a little more caffeine in me and I like, feel like I have the energy to do more of this thinking work, I'm going to shift these times in my calendar and I'm going to do this work at another mm. time. Now, you may tell me this is what I'd love to know. Like, don't do that, Kathy, right? Um, mm. I will say mm. I definitely fall prey to I can be in my writing sprint and Yes, I will go check my email. It's awful near. I'm like, okay, I, I, I need to go through these steps in the book. I need to do my audit of my emotional triggers, right? That are getting me distracted. <laughs> but those are two examples yeah. that I might offer. Yeah. 
So, okay. So first of all, we're cut from the same cloth. So I want you to know I wrote Indistractable not because I had the answers, but because I was looking for the answers. And it took me five years to write this book, mostly because for the first four years, I kept getting distracted while I was writing it. It wasn't until I learned these techniques and started applying them holistically. So you got to do all four, even if it's a small step in all four, you have to use them in concert. The, the book is full of 30 pages of peer reviewed studies, right? All these citations, because I really wanted a technique that not only works, right? I, I needed it to actually work in my own life to fix my own problem, but it had to be backed by good scientific studies. So there's 30 pages of citations to peer reviewed studies that, that, that show what really works. And that was actually the hardest part of the book was cutting out the stuff that, you know, we've heard uh, is effective, but actually when you look at the research, it's not very effective. So let's dive into this specifically for you. So um, there's there, there was a, 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 a kind of a few embedded questions. So if there's a few small tasks that you can bundle together, then I give you permission for in that time box to, uh, to choose whatever task you want. So sometimes I'll do this with admin tasks. So if I've got a bunch of small five, 10 minute little tasks, then I'll time box an hour to do that, to work on admin tasks. And then I can pick, what do I have energy for? Okay, do I wanna call this person now or do I wanna send this email, whatever. For that small admin tasks, you can do whatever order you want. If it's the big, hairy, gnarly work that you really need to do and is the most important stuff that you need to do. So in your case, you said it was writing, correct? Yep. So for that, I would say time box that, that, that time and keep it sacred. Okay, so the whole, we didn't really get into time boxing, but what, what is time boxing just to fill everyone in? Time boxing uses this, this principle called setting an implementation intention, which is just a fancy way of saying, planning out what you're going to do and when you're going to do it. It is by far the most studied and most effective time management technique that only high performers use. <laughs> Low performers don't wanna do it. Low performers don't wanna do it. Because they don't want to be restricted. I need to be spontaneous. What if something comes up? They make up all these excuses. I hate to say it. I was in this camp as well. The studies are overwhelming. Literally thousands of peer-reviewed studies. And if you look at high-performance people, they do this already. They already do this. It's just about saying to yourself, what am I going to do? And when am I going to do it? By the way, it's not what will I finish. Mm. This is very, very important. The problem with to-do lists, I know I mentioned earlier why to-do lists are so toxic. The problem with to-do lists is that they measure you based on how many cute little boxes you checked off, right? And I've worked with people over the years who will write things down after they do them for the joy of checking them off, right? It's ridiculous. It makes no sense. So when you measure yourself by how many cute little boxes you checked off, it gives you an incentive to do all the menial little easy tasks, not the hard and important tasks, right? So instead of measuring your, your self-worth based on how many cute little boxes, which by the way, this totally backfires because... To-do lists have no constraints. You can always add more and more and more and more to a to-do list. So what happens? You get home from work, you look at your to-do list, and you still have all these things you haven't finished, loser. And so what does that tell you? What does that do to your self-image? If day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, you're constantly reinforcing this self-image of someone who doesn't do what they say they're going to do. Rather, a time box calendar, your metric is not, did I finish? It's, did I work on what I said I was going to work on without distraction. That's it. That's all it is. Not did I finish. It's did I do what I said I was going to do for as long as I said I would without distraction. That's all it is. And it turns out that people who use that technique, if you just put in that time box consistently to work on the task and do nothing else, those people actually get more done than the to-do list devotees. Why? 
because to-do lists have no feedback mechanism. You don't know how much progress you made in a unit of time, right? Whereas a time box calendar, you can say, okay, I worked on this task for 30 minutes. Here's how far I got. And if I got 10% done, that means I, ten, I need 10 more units like this to finish the task completely. But with a to-do list, you work on it for five minutes and then you check email and then you do something else. And then, and then you come back to the task and you can't measure how long it actually takes you to finish a task, which is why we have this thing called the planning fallacy that tells us that on average, a task takes someone three times longer to finish than they estimate because we're not training ourselves to estimate how long things take. So let's, okay, so now that we've set the stage on why time boxing is so important, and if there's one mantra I want everyone to write down is, you can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. Okay, I'm gonna say that again. You cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So if you can't look at your calendar and say, ah, I wanted to do this, but I did something else, what did you get distracted from? If you've got a bunch of white space in your day, what did you get distracted from? <laughs> because you didn't define what is traction. You can only have distraction unless you have traction. So you have to decide in advance. And I mean the day before, at least, if not the week before, how you want to spend that time. Not what you want to get done, but how you want to spend your time in that period of time. So let's go back to your problem, Kathy. So you said you you sit down to write and, and walk me through what happens. You say, okay, you, you've taken that very important step to time box and you say, okay, I'm going to have this time to write. And then what happens? Well, in fairness, like to myself, like I do write in that hour. However, I do uh -huh. allow myself within that hour to get distracted too, right? It's yeah. just kind of like, I know I am feeling some discomfort and I've actually been wondering about this. Like, why am I feeling this mm -hmm. discomfort? Why do I feel the need to distract myself, right? And then yeah. I, I will come back to the writing, but it it definitely happens and it happens more often than I would like. And so it's, it's something that I, I want to address. Yeah. So I'll tell you why you feel that. You feel that because it's hard work. Mm. That's why you feel it. Now, uh, th those are internal triggers, right? Stress, anxiety, uh, uncertainty. Those are things I feel every single day as a writer. I've been professionally writing for over 10 years. I still feel it every single day. And I think there's it's gotten worse because I think we have this myth in society that we can turn everything into a habit right? How many habit books are there out there, right? Uh, and the, the reason I think we've reached kind of peak habit is that people have, have taken this notion that uh, habitual behavior, when people say, I want to turn something into a habit, they're really saying, I want it to be easy. I want it to be something that I, I don't like doing, but I want to have done, right? I don't really like writing. It's really hard work. But if I get into the writing habit, it'll be on autopilot. I don't really like meditating, but if I start a meditation habit, it won't be hard. I don't like exercise, but that's why I should start an exercise habit so it can be easy. Because I don't like doing those things. I like having done those things. But here's the thing. What is the definition of a habit? The definition of a habit is a behavior done with little or no conscious thought. I don't know about you, Kathy. I don't know how to write with little or no conscious thought. Somebody teach me. I don't know how to exercise. If I'm trying to get stronger, if I'm in the gym and I'm trying to, you know, to, to, to get stronger somehow, that's hard work. I can't turn my brain off. That's the point. It, you, if you're meditating with little or no conscious thought, you're doing it wrong. You're asleep, right? That's not meditating. You're, so the whole point of meditation is to be mindful of what's happening right now in your own head. So these things cannot be turned into habits. So don't even try. So what's the alternative? The alternative is to turn them into routines. A routine is a series of behaviors frequently repeated, and there's no expectation they have to be easy. So the mind shift I want people to hear is that to get better at something, 
is going to be uncomfortable. And so that's how we prepare for these internal triggers. We need these tools in our toolkit ready to go so that when we feel these ugly internal triggers of uncertainty, fatigue, stress, anxiety, we know what to do with them. High performers, turns out what I've found in my research, high performers in every field, right? Whether it's athletics, whether it's uh, uh, art, literature, business, high performers, they feel the very same internal triggers that the rest of us feel, but they behave differently. They use those internal triggers as rocket fuel to propel them forward towards traction rather than what other people do is that whenever they feel uncomfortable, they try and escape that discomfort with distraction. So the idea here is that you need to have a plan so that when you feel the discomfort, you know what to do with it. So for me, I'll tell you personally from writing every day, one technique that I use almost every day is called the 10 minute rule. And the 10-minute rule, I didn't make it up. It comes from acceptance and commitment therapy. It's been used for decades now, very well researched. The 10-minute rule says that when you feel the urge towards distraction, okay, and this can be while you're writing and you just want to check email for a quick minute, or maybe if you're on a diet, you're trying to avoid that chocolate cake, or maybe you're trying to stop smoking, whatever the case might be, whatever the distraction is, you can tell yourself, look, I can give in to that distraction. Okay, I'm, I'm a grown person. I can do whatever I want. I can give in to that distraction, but not right now. Not right now. I will give in to it in 10 minutes. And for those 10 minutes, what you want to do is to do what's called surf the urge. Surfing the urge acknowledges that these feelings are just transitory, right? They're like waves. And so your job is to ride that wave like a surfer on a surfboard. And so if you can start adopting this very quick practice of saying, okay, I have that urge to check email. I'm gonna set a timer for 10 minutes and I'm gonna check email in 10 minutes. But for those 10 minutes, I've got a choice to make. I can either get back to the task at hand, I can get back to the writing, or I can keep surfing that urge. So sometimes what I do is I close my eyes, I take a quick second, I take a deep breath, and I start thinking to myself, what's going on here? Where are these internal triggers coming from? And I've changed the way I used to talk to myself. The conversation in my head used to be, well, if this is hard work, I must be doing it wrong. Or maybe I'm not very good at this. I'm an imposter. What if I'm, I, I'm, I'm in the wrong profession, right? This is supposed to be easy. I don't have that narrative anymore. Rather, my mantra, whenever I feel these ugly internal triggers and all I want to do is go check email or this is the best, research something, right? I need to Google something to make sure I'm, I, I'm doing research. Instead, I close my eyes and I repeat this mantra. This is what it feels like to get better at something. Mm. This is what it feels like to get better at something. And by reframing that internal trigger, right? We're so pain averse in our society. Whenever we feel the littlest itch, we need a pill, we need a cream, we need a solution, we need a guru, we need a plan. No, sometimes the right solution is to deal with a discomfort. That's what it feels like to get better at something. That's what it feels like to push through and, and, and create something new, right? That's part of it. So these simple tactics, and by the way, this is one, you know, the 10 minute rule is one of dozens that I describe in the book for how to master these internal triggers. But the power of the 10 minute rule is that you're proving your own agency. You're proving to yourself that I don't really need to check email right now. Okay. Nothing's going to happen if email waits for 30 more minutes, right? There's no fires. Everything's fine. It's in my own head, right? I'm making up these feelings. It's just rumination. And it's an easy excuse for me to get out of doing the hard work that I know I need to do. 
So by by using this 10 minute rule, what you're doing is saying, wait a minute, I waited for 10 minutes. That was I could you could do anything for 10 minutes, just 10 minutes. So the 10 minutes becomes 12 minutes, becomes 15 minutes, becomes 30 minutes. And now you're proving to yourself that you do have agency. You do have uh, the ability to delay when you're going to try and escape these uncomfortable internal triggers. But listen, if after the 10 minutes, the 10 minutes are up and you still want to check email, fine. But what you're going to see is over time, you're proving to yourself that you can wait out that uncomfortable sensation. Mm. I love this. Thank you. I appreciate the one-on-one coaching. I mean, I know some of these are in the book, but it's helpful to have it, you know, kind of articulated back. Time boxing is powerful, but is it doable? That's what I wanted to know. For those of you working in corporate environments, systemic structures can make it hard to get control over your calendar and time, both for leaders and for those more junior in an organization. So let's hear what Nir thinks about that. He doesn't hold back. And he offers smart guidance to help you take back that control. One of the tips he offers I think can be super helpful for those who work in hybrid environment and might need to manage up with a manager who may be wondering what they're working on, how they're using their time, or even questioning their productivity. I do want to also come back to this time boxing and making time for traction. And partly because, Nir, I believe in this. I'm self-employed, so I have a little bit more control of my calendar. Yet, I mean, I have clients too. I have to, you know, adjust and be accommodating to meetings, et cetera. But for individuals who live in environments where you mentioned meetings earlier, but they're in companies where they're meeting having, you know, cultures and you might be a little bit more junior where you don't have as much control over your calendar, but there are senior leaders who also claim they don't have control over their calendars. How do they actually implement time boxing outside of the weekends? Like how do they get more control over their calendar at work? Sure. Yeah. So I've heard every excuse in the book and I'll tell you that they're all bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) I've never met somebody who can't time box. What I have met is a lot of people who have some very elaborate excuses about why they can't. Hmm. And they use those excuses. And I'll tell you why. I'm I'm not talking to anybody in particular, but I'm sure a lot of people hearing either do this or know somebody who does this. They don't want to do the hard work, right? It's much easier to call a meeting. We should discuss this rather than sitting down and thinking, for God's sakes, just sit down and think with a piece of paper and a pencil and think through these ideas, right? But many times leaders, by and large, They don't want to do that. It's so easy today to call a Zoom meeting. So let's just get on everybody's calendar and we'll talk it out. We'll have a brainstorming session. You know what the optimal number of people, and studies have verified this, the optimal number of people for a brainstorming session, the right number? Two people. Two people or less. Right. That's the right number of people for a brainstorming session. Why? Because any more than two people, you get the loudest, the highest paid, and the most male person in the room dominates the brainstorming session. So the right number of people for a brainstorming session is two or less. And that needs to be done asynchronously, not synchronously. We don't need to all be in the same room or on a Zoom meeting to have a a brainstorming session. The person who is calling for these insights needs to send out a little brief and say, hey, here's the question. Okay, please schedule 30, 45 minutes on on your calendar. Can you please write up your thoughts and your suggestions about this idea? Why do we all need to be in the same room at the same time, spending all this time and money uh, in terms of lost wages for an idea that we can do asynchronously. So send out that idea. Say, hey, here's what I need your thoughts on. Please spend 15, 20 minutes on it, whatever it is. 
and send me back your suggestions. And then I will think through your suggestions and then I will call a meeting so that we can do the only thing that should be done in a meeting. What is the purpose of a meeting? There's only one reason for a business meeting. It's not socializing. Socializing are different events, right? We're talking about business meetings. Business meetings need to be conducted for one reason, one reason only, and that is to gain consensus. Okay, I'll say that again. The purpose of a business meeting is to gain consensus. That's it. That's it. And so what you need to do is two things. Before you call a meeting, you need to circulate an agenda, okay? 80% of business meetings, 80% don't have a business agenda. This is what we learned in high school student council, right? I, I, was, I was in student council in high school. You didn't have a student council meeting without an agenda. And so somehow when we're all getting paid all this money to have business meetings, we don't even circulate an agenda. Ridiculous, especially because of how easy it is today with Zoom. You just call a meeting, doesn't cost, you know, doesn't, it's so easy to do. We don't even have to have people physically present. So we're calling way too many of these. So we need to slow it down. So number one, circulate an agenda. Number two, circulate a briefing document. And this isn't something that I invented. This actually, I, I got this from Amazon. At Amazon, if you want to call people together, you have to circulate a briefing document. What is a briefing document? It shows the person who called the meeting did their homework where they lay out, hey, here's the problem, here's the research, and here's my recommendation. Now let's get together and tell me, did I miss anything, right? So that we can gain consensus and push forward, right? So if you do those two things, if you're a business leader, if you do those two things, require an agenda for a business meeting and require a, a briefing document, you will dramatically cut down on the number of meetings you're having right now that are superfluous, that are nothing more than distractions, and you will exponentially increase the quality of those meetings, okay? Now, what if you're not in leadership, okay? What if, what if you're, you're, you've got a boss and they're constantly interrupting you and they're constantly distracting you? you? You've read my book and you've implemented all the tactics in it and yet you're still interrupted. Okay, here's what you do. You manage your manager. How do you do that? You do what's called schedule syncing. Now, part of the beauty of having a time box calendar is that you now have an artifact. You have now something that you can show others. So what I want you to do is to sit down with your boss and say, hey, I need about 10, 15 minutes. Can I get 10 minutes on your calendar? Monday morning, I want you to sit down with them and show them your time box calendar for your work week, okay? And I want you to put in, hey, here's the meetings. Here's time I want for email. Here's time that I set aside for what's called reflective work, right? Many, many people... Uh, we know what reactive work is. Reactive work is reacting to emails, reacting to notifications, reacting to meetings. That's fine, right? Everybody has some part of their day that needs to be available for reactive work. The problem is that many, many people, that's all they do. They have no time for what's called reflective work. Reflective work is the kind of work that can only be done without distraction. Planning, strategizing, thinking, for God's sakes, can only be done without distraction. So you put that in your calendar, right? You put time for reflective work. You put time for the meetings, for everything that's on your agenda, okay? You put that in your schedule. Now, you also show them this other document, okay? You have a piece of paper and you write down all the things that they want you to do that you couldn't fit into that schedule. And now you are going to avoid the worst piece of productivity advice, the productivity advice that drives me up the wall. We hear it all the time. If you want to be more productive, you need to learn how to say no to people. What kind of stupid advice is that? Who, only a professor with tenure is going to write a book telling you to tell your boss no, okay? If you tell your boss no, you're going to get fired. That's dumb advice. Rather, you don't tell them no. You ask them to help you prioritize. That is your boss's most importantly, arguably their only job that really matters is 
prioritization. That's what managers do. They help you prioritize. So you say, look, boss, I've got my schedule here, okay? Here's my calendar, right? Here's my time box schedule. This is how I plan to spend my time in the week ahead. Here's the list of things you asked me to do that I'm having trouble fitting in. Can you help me prioritize? If you do this, listen, your boss will worship the ground you walk on. Anybody who's been in a management position will tell you they wonder what people are doing, right? How they're spending their time. They don't want to micromanage you. So what you want to do is to proactively manage your manager by showing them, hey, here's how I plan to spend my time. Tell me what I should reprioritize. And what they're going to do is they're going to look at your schedule and say, hey, you know what? Um, that meeting is actually way less important than this task on that piece of paper. That's actually super important. Can you please swap those out? Great. Now they have transparency in terms of how you're spending your time. They also have transparency into when you should not be bothered. Okay. When you say, this is my reflective work time. I need from nine to 11 to work without distraction. I've got that big proposal coming up. I need to do some creative work. I need to really think through something. That's my time when I can't be interrupted. That's my reflective work time. Okay, that's been discussed in advance. I know your schedule now, so I can leave you alone. <laughs> and it's because your boss doesn't know when you had that time reserved for focused work. That's why they interrupt you because they just don't know when you have that time plan. But if you share your schedule with them and it's been fully time boxed, they can't insert meetings where there's no availability and they have transparency into what you're doing, okay? Now, I know people say, yeah, but... um. I'm in the client services business. Uh, I work on it with an international team. Uh, my kids might need me at any time of day or night. Well, here's the thing. The vast majority, the overwhelming majority of these concerns are in your head. They're in your head. Because if you make a time box calendar of let's say 30 minutes, okay, 30 minutes when I'm going to do work without distraction, and then I'm gonna take a break, and I'm gonna look through my email, and I'm gonna check my phone, make sure there's no fires, and then I'm gonna go into another 30-minute session to work without distraction. There is almost never a circumstance where a client, a boss, your kid can't wait for 30 minutes. And if it's really, oh my God, a disaster, they're not gonna email you. They're gonna barge into the room and tell you, oh my God, your house is on fire, or they're gonna call you, or they're gonna do something, a different medium to tell you it's really you know, something that's actually urgent. So overwhelmingly, the problem is not with someone actually needs you. It's that it's the fear that someone needs you. And so don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Plan that time, work that schedule. And then if there really is a crisis and emergency, the 0.1% the of times that that's actually the case, they'll find you, they'll get to you. Mm. Do you ever advise that teams coordinate their schedules? So I know you write about in the book, BCG and coordinated time off. Do you ever think about like, the, the fact that teams may need to coordinate these dedicated times where they can do traction kind of work or focus work. So there's a whole section of the book on how to build an indistractable workplace. And the, 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 there's three tenets of an indistractable workplace. Number one is that employees have psychological safety. Psychological safety is this principle that we can talk about a problem without fear of retribution, without fear of getting fired. And so here's the thing, the problem of distraction at work is that we can't talk about the problem of distraction at work. That's the problem, that people are scared to bring up the topic because they're gonna be seen as you know lazy or they, they're not a team player or whatever. But here's the fact of the matter, if you can't raise your hand and say, hey, um, I'm really not able to do my best work if I'm constantly interrupted every 30 seconds, can we talk about a solution? If you can't mention that, if you can't bring that up, that's the problem. And I promise you, you have all kinds of other skeletons in your closets as well that you're not able to talk about. 
So number one is psychological safety, the ability to talk about this problem. Number two is a forum to talk about the problem. So that's why I don't like these cookie cutter solutions where they say, oh, you know what? The solution to distraction at work, everybody should have email free Fridays. Well, that's not necessarily going to work for every company. And just because some other company is doing it doesn't mean you should just plop it onto your organization because it doesn't solve the problem. The real problem, again, is that you can't talk about the problem. So just slapping on some solution that somebody else is doing is doesn't solve the problem. The problem is not talking about it. The, the solution is let's get everyone together, talk about this problem and come up with solutions that work for us, which might be, hey, let's coordinate so that, hey, you know what? Every Wednesday afternoon, no meetings, focus time. Great. If that's what your team decided together because you gave them psychological safety and a forum to talk about this problem, wonderful. The third trait of an indistractable company, which is the most important, is that leadership exemplifies what it means to be indistractable. Can't tell you how many organizations I'm called into pay me a lot of money to come and consult them and help their company become indistractable. And I walk into the meeting and I start my presentation and who is it in the back of the room that's busy on their phone? Is it the, 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 the young kids, right? The kids that are all connected to TikTok and uh, Instagram, is it them? Nope, they're not, they're paying attention. You know who it is? The big boss, the big boss who needs to show everybody how important they are. I constantly need to be connected, right? And so what does that do? Leadership is like water. It flows downhill. So people look to the leaders and they say, well, if that person's always online, if they're always connected, I need to be as well. You know, I've known managers who will literally <laughs> call me to help their company become indistractable. And meanwhile, they're talking to me as they're saying, oh, I just got this one thing on my phone, right? I do this with parents. Parents do this all the time. My kid is constantly on Fortnite. He won't stop playing video games. And meanwhile, they're checking Facebook. We can't do that. We have to stop being hypocrites and realize that we have to exemplify what it means to be indistractable in order to teach others. So if you, for example, at Slack, this, this blew my mind. Slack is one of these technologies. You know, Slack is this, the world's largest uh, group messaging service. Uh, it's one of these products that people always complain about as being so distracting, right? That the technology is making us so distracting. And so I went to visit Slack headquarters. And when I visited them, I expected them to be very distracted because look, nobody uses Slack more than Slack. That's not what I found. That on nights and weekends, if you use Slack, you are reprimanded. You are told that is not what we do here at Slack. And in fact, in the company canteen, right, where everybody gets together for, uh, for, for meetings or lunches, there's a huge pink neon sign that says, work hard and go home. Because it's part of the company ethos. They believe that to get the best out of people, you need to let them work without distraction and to live their lives without distraction. And so that's the third most important principle is that management needs to exemplify what it means to be indistractable. I really appreciated that you had the Slack example in the book because of this, the perniciousness of it and the fact that people complain yeah. about it, right? And I was surprised to learn of this in, about, in terms of their culture. And it's almost as if they need a second arm, like a service arm of Slack, where they go into organizations mm -hmm. and teach them how to deploy Slack in their organizations, because they are using it correctly. And yet the rest of the world is using it in a way where it does become distracting or, and perhaps it doesn't need to be, but there aren't like rules yeah. like they've deployed, right? Around how to actually deploy it in a way that it serves them as opposed to doesn't serve people. Yeah, absolutely. And this is, you know, it's true that they they should make it more explicit how to use it correctly. But I will say to their credit, the tools are there. Uh, 
It's just that people don't use them. They don't use them for a variety of reasons. They don't use them mostly, I think, because company culture doesn't let them. That distraction at work is a symptom of cultural dysfunction. I'll say that again. Distraction at work is a symptom of cultural dysfunction. So, you know, if teams did what I suggested of giving people psychological safety, number one, giving them a form to talk about the problem and leadership exemplifying what it means to be indistractable, if companies did that, they'd figure out how to use Slack properly, right? Slack comes with features like, I'm, I'm busy, right? Uh, you can use Slack appropriately. So what, there's a very short section in the book where I talk about how to use group messaging services appropriately. And so this is a, a strategy I, I stole from Jason Fried, who says, who, by the way, makes Basecamp, which is a competitor to Slack. And he says the right way to use these group messaging services is like a hot tub, okay? You get into the hot tub and then you get out of the hot tub. You don't stay in a hot tub all day long because you're going to be all pruny and gross. And what people do mistakenly is they leave Slack open all day long. That's a terrible idea. <laughs> Why would you do that? Because, oh, I am afraid somebody's going to need me. But again, that's a fear. That's not reality. It's a fear in your head. It's not real. They can wait 30 minutes until you hop back into Slack. So when you're using Slack, you get in, then you get out. That's the number one rule I wish people would adopt. I have just two final questions for you before we wrap up. One is you spent five years researching this book, you said, and I am curious, I'm going to pull from Adam Grant here, where I'm curious if you've rethought anything since you finished the book. And it came out right before the pandemic, which I think actually should have served people from the during the pandemic, but I don't know if it did near. So I'm curious, even living through the pandemic and working with clients, if you've learned like anything needs to be adjusted or if you're like, no, this is more relevant today than ever. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to take the latter one on that. So I remember during uh, 2020, so the book launched in 2019, late 2019, October. And uh, I remember during the pandemic, I remember turning to my wife and saying, thank God I wrote this book before the pandemic because I don't think I could have made it through because the world was so distracting. Like if you remember 2020, uh, my God, there was political craziness. There was, of course, the pandemic. You know, people were going through so much crazy stuff. And all I wanted to do all day was check the news, check the news, check the news. And it really wasn't serving me. There was very little I could do about it, right? So, and, and the news media in general is like a drug, right? It's, it's uh, dose dependent, right? A little bit of a drug can be very healthy and helpful, but too much of it can kill you. And that's exactly what the news is. Uh, and they will never tell you to stop. And this is something we have to realize that the news media, whether it's conventional news like television or cable or print, uh, or social media, all media wants you to spend as much time as possible with them. Do we not know this? Does anybody not know that's the way the media business operates? They sell your eyeballs to advertisers. That's their business model. And the New York Times can get all preachy and say Facebook is bad. They're in the same damn business model. They're never going to tell you you've had enough. And so to me, it became uh, indistractable, became more relevant because there were so many more internal triggers, right? There was so much more uncertainty in the world and stress and anxiety that the natural reaction would have been, uh, you know, watch the news more, uh, get distracted more, try and take your mind off of what's going on in the world. And those things are not necessarily healthy because they're not promoting the kind of behaviors you really wanted to do with your time and attention. So I was very, very thankful that, frankly, I had the book. I, I had to reference it several times, as funny as that sounds. I don't, I didn't memorize every word of the book. I need to go back and remind myself, okay, this is the right technique. Because becoming indistractable it's not something you're done doing, right? It's like saying, you're, you know, you're never done being creative. It's something you do every day. And so uh, I, I still have to, to, to remind myself of these techniques. So that's, that's one. I'm very happy that the book came out before the, the pandemic. And then two, I think what's changed, um, and now it's kind of changing back, 
was that uh, when we did surveys of what was the greatest distractions that people faced during their day, before the pandemic, the number one source of distraction uh, related to work was other people. That was the number one source of distraction, other people. It wasn't their technology. It wasn't the pings and dings. It was people stopping by their desk and saying, hey, can I, you know, where's that TPS report? Or did you hear this office gossip or whatever it might be? That was the number one source of distraction that people that people had. But then, of course, as everybody went to work from home, it wasn't your boss and your colleagues that were distracting you. It was your kids. It was your pets. It was your spouse. It was your roommate. And so they had to, people had to figure out what to do about that. And so there's actually is a section in the book about how to deal with the distractions of, of, of family at home as well, about things you can do as well. Uh, so I didn't anticipate the pandemic would make working from home such a such a big thing. Uh, but, you know, I, I've been working from home uh, for the past, what, eight years now. Uh, so I was kind of prepared. I've been through it before. My, my daughter is homeschooled, actually. So we all work together in the same house. So we kind of had a lot of practice. So I wouldn't say it's anything that I needed to revise, but I think there's some areas that became more important than I thought they would be. Mm. Building on that, I think we both love the power of curiosity. And I'm curious what yeah. curiosity rabbit hole you're going down right now. Oh, this is a good question. Yeah. So I love that Dorothy Parker quote that uh, the cure for boredom is curiosity. There is no cure for curiosity. And I think curiosity is one of these uh, gifts that we as human beings have. Uh, I, it's what keeps me going. It's this flame that is easily extinguished. <laughs> and so you have to keep it lit. Um, so right now, what, I'm, what curiosity, uh, what, what's driving me? I'm very interested in um, how to deal with discomfort. Uh, how we can use it to our advantage and how it's used and detrimentally, like how dealing with discomfort, can you turn on discomfort and motivation like a switch? I'm not, I'm, I'm diving into that field. I don't have any great answers quite yet. Well, I will continue to listen and read what you write and put out there because I'll be curious about this. I have talked with others where they talk about this idea, like we need to learn how to appreciate the grind of things, right? Appreciate the hard work mm. or the discomfort like you're talking about. And so, but it's it's hard to get us yeah. to appreciate that, right? So, well, Nir, this has been phenomenal. Thank you so much. I love the book. I, I'm looking forward to putting the practices into place. And thank you again for the coaching. I mean, if you were to leave people with just, and you've already left us with a number of tips, but just one step to make the biggest difference in becoming indistractable, what would you advise? So I'll leave you with another one of my mantras, which is the antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. The antidote to impulsiveness is forethought. That fundamentally, distraction is a problem of impulse control. That's it. It's something that we look back later with regret because we knew we should have done one thing, but we did something else. We know we should have gone to the gym, but we didn't. We know we should have not checked our phone when we were with our kids, but we did. We know we should have uh, stayed working on uh, that writing task, but we went and checked emails. And then later we look back and we said, darn it, why did I waste my time and attention that way? So what I try and do is to minimize regret. I want to look back at my life and say, I lived it to the fullest because I did what I said I was going to do. And so the antidote to that impulsiveness that takes us off track is forethought, that there is no distraction that we can't overcome if we plan ahead. If you leave it to the last minute, you're going to lose, right? Mm -hmm. If you sleep next to your cell phone, it's going to be the first thing you reach for in the morning. If you, uh, uh, if you wait till the chocolate cake is on the fork, if you're on a diet, it's too late. You're going to eat it. If the cigarette is lit in your hand, you're going to smoke it. It's too late. You have to plan ahead. But if you do so, if you plan ahead, if you take these actions today to prevent getting distracted tomorrow, you will be indistractable. Mm. If people want to continue to follow you and learn from you, where can they find you? 
Sure. So my website is nearandfar.com. Near is spelled like my first name. That's N-I-R and far.com. And uh, if you go to indistractable.com, there's actually a free workbook, 80-page workbook, complimentary, that we couldn't fit to the final edition of the book. It got too big. So we decided to make it available for free. And that's available at indistractable.com. It's spelled I-N, the word distract, A-B-L-E, indistractable.com. Fabulous. And I'll, of course, capture that in the show notes. Nir, this is fabulous. Thank you for your work, for your wisdom and sharing it with us. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This is a juicy episode. I've listened to it multiple times to take in all the learning. And the indistractable book is the same. Really, it's chock full of insights and tips. So much that I would love to call out for you that I didn't get a chance to talk to Nira about. So I encourage you to pick up the book and read it for yourself and keep it as a reference point as you learn to manage your own distraction. I wanted to call out a few points I loved from the episode. The first is that we shouldn't expect everything to be easy and how we need to get comfortable with doing hard work, in quotes. For me, this isn't contrary to sustainability. If you put in the work to create systems for yourself, if you put in the work to get things done in an organization without holding a meeting, say, if you invest in forethought, these can all support you in creating more sustainability. It might take hard work, but it pays off in the end. The second point I wanted to call out is a little bit more tactical, but I really loved Nir's perspective on to-do lists. I think I knew what he was sharing intuitively, but the way he spoke about managing to-dos unlocked a powerful insight for me. There are three key points I wanted to pull out for you. The first, that to-do lists themselves can create more distraction. So interesting. And I can see that. The second is how The problem with to-do lists is they don't map to time. To-do lists are kind of like email. There are no constraints, which can lead to overwhelm, where a to-do list just keeps getting longer and longer and longer with no consideration as to whether or not that to-do list can realistically map to the time you have. The third point he made that I really loved is this idea about it's not about finishing. It's about what did you intend to do with that time? And did you show up and actually focus on what you were meant to focus on in that moment? Those things, I'm going to be really sitting with those, and perhaps you will as well, as I continue to work on gaining traction with my work. The final point I wanted to call out was how Nir said, distraction at work is a symptom of cultural dysfunction. I love how Nir points us towards prioritization and calling leaders to provide that prioritization for their employees. A key factor around burnout today in companies is workload. Yes, there's a lot of talk about well-being, but McKinsey has found a bigger problem and a better solution is to look at systemic organizational problems. I think organizations do a poor job of prioritizing workload. And I know it's hard, but Research also shows that individuals aren't good at doing that for themselves. If anything, the research has shown that workers tend to naturally work 20% more than we should. So we need organizations and leaders, frankly, to do their job, to prioritize the work that really is going to make an impact and that is really important. 
So as a leader, give a gift to your employees and help them prioritize. And manage up or ask yourself if you're self-employed or you're a leader to really get clear on priorities. So I encourage you again to pick up Nir's book. It is full of practical tips to help you become indistractable. And I know I'm actively working with some of the tools and tips and the coaching that he provided me. Some things I had already been doing, like time blocking and aligning my values to how I use my time. But now I've been working more on these internal triggers, mostly, and again, using his counsel on surfing the urge and the 10-minute rule. Those have really been working for me. And now, as listening back to this episode again, I'm being reminded to add his mantra to honor the hard work that I'm doing and to say, this is what it feels like to get better at something. And while Nir doesn't talk about this and pushes against habits, I've been using a neurological trick to use environmental cues to tell my brain it's time for a particular activity and it's time for my focus work. I do two things in my environment. The first is that I simply close the door between my dining room where I write and our kitchen. So it just gives me this mental sense of being closed off. Now to really cement that in is I actually wear Bose headphones these over-ear headphones, which again becomes a cue to my brain that it is really time to focus and put my attention to what I want to get done. Now, these practices are starting to help me, but as Nir says, we're never done with this. This really is a practice. And I appreciated that he said, even for him, after writing the book and during the pandemic, he had to go back and remind himself of some of the best tools to use to help get him into traction and not be distracted. So what about for you? As you reflect on today's conversation, what called out to you? What's one insight that caught your attention that you will take action on? And consider how can you put it into action within the next 24 hours to really start to practice with this? With that, thank you for being here with me to learn with Nir Ayal. I'll be back in your feed in two weeks with a new story of sustainable ambition. And in the meantime, you can find show notes for this and other episodes at sustainableambition.com slash podcast. And make sure you don't miss an episode or my insider tips, guides, and tools by signing up for Sustainable Ambition Forum, my twice monthly newsletter. Sign up at sustainableambition.com slash subscribe. And you can also send me a note or a listener question you'd like me to answer here on the podcast. Either send me an email at podcast at sustainableambition.com or leave me a voice note at bit.ly slash sapodcast-esk. I am rooting for all of us to get some traction. So let's get to it.